Well, thank you, Gina, for a good punctuation mark to our time of prayer. I'm sure that many who are praying silently or with somebody at the front are in the middle of the in-between or in the middle of the questioning, and that's a good reminder of the hope that we have. Will you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 as we continue a series on stories Jesus told, parables, many of them parables of the kingdom, including those that we will look at today. Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to invite you to pray briefly with me once more. Well, Father, thank you that uh, you have listened to our prayers. Now would you heed this prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and let all his people say, Amen. Walker Percy's novel, The Second Coming, is a weird story filled with strange characters, mad musings. The hero of the novel is an embarrassment to his friends. He's always been a little bit odd, but he's getting loonier as he gets older. Um, he goes around asking people, including strangers, do you believe that Christ will come again and that, in fact, there are certain unmistakable signs of his coming in these very times? He's the kind of guy that if you see him coming up the sidewalk, you're likely to cross the street to avoid not unlike the stock character of cartoons, the man wearing a sandwich board that says, the end is near. But crazy or not, the guy with the sandwich board is right. The end is near, not necessarily in the sense that it is something we can date, not necessarily in the sense that our timetable and God's timetable are the same, but in God's timetable, the time is near when he will bring the curtain down on history. The king will return. Crazy or not, the guy in the novel asks a valid question. Do you believe that Christ will come again? <laughs> Do you know that the Bible teaches that Christ will come again? A reporter asked Billy Graham once, does the Bible say that Jesus will come back again? Which surprises me a little bit that an educated man would not know that the Bible teaches that. He may not believe the Bible. He may not believe that Jesus will come again, but I would think that an educated reporter would know at least that the Bible says that the king will come again. Well, in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus talks about his coming again at the end of time, and we'd have to be crazy to not take him seriously. He teaches us about the return of the king in four vignettes that we're going to look at this morning. Actually, there are six in these two chapters, but uh, the vignette of the sheep and the goats I already preached on a few weeks ago, the vignette of the talents, beginning in the middle of chapter 25, deserves a sermon to itself. Maybe we'll get to it in this series. But this morning, we're going to see what we can learn, and there will be something slightly different that we learn 
from each of these four illustrations that Jesus gives, the flood, the thief, the servant, and the bridesmaids. Look at verse 36 of chapter 24 as Joe reads. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I'm amazed that people continue to predict the date of Jesus' return. <laughs> when he so clearly says that he himself did not know, but that this was something that only his father knew. I still have in my files somewhere a little booklet, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. <laughs> it's full of detailed calculations based on an eccentric reading of Bible prophecy. And when 1988 came and went and the Lord did not return, the author wrote a follow-up booklet in which he said that he, he miscalculated slightly. And uh, this time he hedged his bets and said that the return of the king would be sometime between 1989 and 1992. Oh well. <laughs> I uh, had a flyer on my windshield one day. Rapture, October 28th, 1992. Oh well. A Bible teacher named Harold Camping, the head of Family Radio, made money on a book predicting the return of Christ in 1994. I'm not sure if he offered refunds when 94 came and went. Then he went on to say that May 21 of the year 2011 was the date, and uh, rented 2,000 billboards nationwide. Some of you may remember this. Judgment Day, May 21, 2011. Did you hear what Jesus said? No one knows. Verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. You get the impression that when the king returns, people will be going about their normal lives. There will not be worldwide, widespread, second coming fever with uh, people selling their homes, heading out to the Temple Mount, which supposedly would be ground zero. Um, a guy from Kansas back in 2011 was one of scores of people who quit their jobs to drive around the country in rapture vans. He said that uh, raccoon hunting was his favorite activity, but he had given that up for something more important. Well, what do we learn about the king's return from the story of the flood? Among other things, no one knows when. Verse 42, therefore, 
keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will return. Now, there is an implied warning in this flood illustration. Jesus could have used other illustrations of surprise timing, but this one is ominous. Not only did the flood surprise people, it swept them away. And that sober note of warning is even more explicit in the second illustration, the thief, verse 43. Or 42 again, and then we'll read on. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is one of six places in the New Testament where the return of Christ is pictured as the coming of a thief in the night. And the point, of course, is that his coming will be disastrous for those who are unprepared. Thieves do not send an engraved announcement telling you when they're going to come, stop by. They catch people off guard. Not only thieves. On a frigid Christmas night in 1776, George Washington, along with 2,400 men, 18 cannons, uh, was ferried across the frozen Delaware River. This daring offensive took the Hessian mercenaries serving with the British completely by surprise. A British loyalist had tried to warn them, but their drunken commander refused to interrupt a card game to receive the message. The result, more than a hundred Hessian soldiers killed or wounded, almost a thousand of them taken prisoner, without the loss of a single American life. Our king's return will be disastrous for the unprepared. One of my kids, when he was three years old, asked his mom, when is God going to come back? And at first she said, well, no one knows. And then she corrected a misunderstanding. Um, it, it isn't God, it's Jesus who's coming back. And the three-year-old said, no, it's not Jesus, because if it was Jesus, they would kill him again. <laughs> no, no. First Peter says, he died for sins once. Once. When he comes again, it will be as king and judge. In a text we will look at more closely this Advent season, the Apostle Paul writes, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Have you obeyed the gospel? Repented of your sins, your rebellion against the king, acknowledged his lordship, accepted his pardon, resolved to follow him all the days of your life? If not, don't delay. 
The illustration of the flood tells us that no one knows when the king might return. The illustration of the thief tells us that his return will be disastrous for the unprepared. Now, if you have accepted his pardon and you have bowed the knee to the king, what should you be doing to be ready for the king's return? Well, Jesus answers that question in the third illustration that of the servant, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our master has given us responsibilities and it will be well for those of us who are busy fulfilling those responsibilities when he returns. One boss was dissatisfied with the work ethic and productivity of his staff, so he put out a box with a sign, when I walk into the office, I expect to find everyone at his desk on task. Any suggestions? <laughs> the next day, there was a slip of paper in the box. Wear squeaky shoes. <laughs> Jesus has not pr promised to wear squeaky shoes or to send us a text message first. He just said he's coming back and it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing what he's supposed to do when he returns. I'm pretty sure I have told you the story of a guy, not in our church, but in suburban Denver from many years ago, um, a member of my congregation there, who was fascinated with biblical prophecy. He had more books on the subject than I did. Um, thought about it, read about it, went online about it. And, and one day he told me, you know, I have come to change my view of the rapture. I used to be pre-trib, now I'm post-trib. That's shorthand for, um, he used to believe that the return of Christ would come in two stages, and that the first stage was when Jesus would take his church to be with himself so that they would not be on earth during a presumed seven years of terrible tribulation and suffering. And uh, we, Christ's people, would be with him and then with him come back for the second stage of his second coming at the end of the tribulation. And Dave, the man in my story, uh, no longer believed that. He believed, based on his study, that the church would go through this period of tribulation, that the coming of Christ 
was not going to be in two stages, but one at the end of the Great Tribulation. And he told me at length about his change of position. But I, I knew this guy, and I suspected that for him, Bible prophecy was kind of like a hobby. So I asked him, what practical difference has your change of theology made in the way you're going to live? Is there any practical take-home value to this change from pre-trib to post-trib? And he said, yeah, he had bought some land in a remote part of Wyoming and had begun building an underground home to be stocked with enough necessities that he and his family could hide out for the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Well, I don't think Jesus or the apostles gave us what they gave us about the returning of the king so that we could hide from the Antichrist or escape trouble to come in the end times. Biblical prophecy was given and is given to us who are hearing it today to motivate faithful service. Paul wrote in his letter to Titus that God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until the king's return, I'm supposed to love God, love neighbor, pray without ceasing, make disciples, exercise my gifts, forsake not the assembling of the, fa of, of the believers, preach diligently, care for the planet. I've heard Christians say, what is the use of trying to make the world a better place? It's all going to burn up anyway, right? And doesn't the Bible indicate that things are going to get worse before the return of the king. If that's going to happen, then what's the point in trying to improve it? I think C.S. Lewis had a good answer to that. He wrote, Happy are those whom the king finds laboring in their vocations, whether they were merely going out to feed the pigs or laying good plans to deliver humanity a hundred years hence from some great evil. The curtain has indeed now fallen. Those pigs will never, in fact, be fed. The great campaign against slavery or government tyranny will never, in fact, proceed to victory. No matter. You were at your post when the inspection came. Sounds like Lewis has read Matthew 24. So this illustration of the servant tells us that readiness means faithful service. The fourth illustration or vignette that Jesus gives us in our text for this morning is a more fully developed parable in chapter 25. Look at Matthew 25, verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, 
took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. From the flood, we learn that no one knows when the king will return. From the thief, we learn that his return will spell disaster for the unprepared. From the servant, we learn that readiness means faithful service. And from the story of the bridesmaids, we learn, be ready. <laughs> be ready. I guess you could say that uh, all four parables teach that. You could say that that's the sermon in two words, be ready. But it is the particular point of this story of the bridesmaids. Now I've been telling my ABF as we've studied the parables over the last several weeks that many of the parables are both realistic and strange. Realistic in the sense that they are they're stories set in everyday life so that Jesus' hearers, most of them uneducated peasants, would not scratch their heads thinking, now what on earth is he referring to? They, they would know. He's talking about soils and weather and fathers and sons. They're, they're realistic. But often there is some strange element, a, a surprise twist or a gross exaggeration or something else that is not realistic, and it is often at that point of strangeness that the reader or the listener is supposed to say, ah, okay, I guess I'm supposed to pay attention to this. This is what I'm supposed to learn from this story. The story of these bridegrooms is realistic in its first century setting. Uh, for a wedding ceremony, the groom would go to the bride's father's house to claim his bride. And then he and she, with all of their attendants and well-wishers, would proceed to his house with great celebration along the way where the ceremony would take place. So thus far, the, the story is realistic. Now, I'm not sure, because I'm not a New Testament scholar, whether the detail of the oil in the lamps is that realistic, if it was often presumed that the bridegroom might be late and they would need lighting along the way. But in any case, um, nobody seems to balk at that part of the story. But the strange part comes 
in verse 10, where we're told that the door to the wedding celebration was shut. And when the bridesmaids who had to go shopping at the last minute for extra oil for their lamps showed up, he, presumably the bridegroom, says, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Who would do that? <laughs> I mean, if it was your wedding, you might go out and say, you numbskulls, why didn't you have enough oil for your lamp? Jeez, couldn't you get your keister here on time? But you wouldn't exclude them. That's the surprise twist in this otherwise realistic story. We're supposed to pay attention with this. This is where Jesus sticks us with the truth. Because his first hearers and people today might assume that the door of opportunity is always open. Isn't that realistic? Isn't that reasonable? That some of us are better than others at getting around to being ready for the king's return. Some of us are quicker than others to get right with God, but the, the door of opportunity is always open. Not so. In this realistic yet strange story, Jesus says, be ready. Because someday, it'll be too late. Keep watch, verse 13 said. You do not know the day or the hour. I told you about the brochure left on my windshield. Here's the text of part of that brochure. Many Christians agree that the second coming will be soon, but they're not particularly interested in when. Why must we know the time of our Lord's coming? Because, and this is in bold font, all caps, if we do not know the time, it is very hard for us to always be prepared and awake. The writer of that brochure wanted Jesus to wear squeaky shoes. But hard or not to be ready and awake, Jesus says, always be prepared and awake. Be ready. We sang, for his returning, we watch and we pray. I hope we meant what we sang. There's a story from Appalachia. In fact, Melissa will appreciate this because it comes specifically from the town she went to college in, Berea, Kentucky, about a man named Quill. Quill, who lived out in the backwoods, hunting and fishing all the time. He didn't pay any attention to hunting seasons or licensing laws or any of that stuff, and he knew the woods a whole lot better than the game warden. The game warden had been trying to catch Quill for a long time, but today was going to be the day. 
He knew Quill would be up early in the morning and go out fishing, so the warden sneaked down in the middle of the night and hid on top of Quill's house. That way he would know he'd have a jump on Quill. The man would get up, go out fishing, and the warden would follow him and wait until he had caught a big catch of illegal fish and then bust him. Well, as it started to get a little bit of daylight, the warden could hear Quill in the house below, moving around, starting a fire, putting the coffee on, and the warden's stomach started to growl at the smell of the coffee and the fresh-smelling biscuits. He could hardly contain himself, and then Quill walked out on the porch and, ho and hollered, come on in and have some of this coffee and biscuits. I know you're out there. <laughs> and walked back in. The warden got down off the roof onto the porch, walked into the house, and said, how did, you, how did you know I was out there? Quill said, I didn't. I go out there and say that every morning, just in case. <laughs> I think Jesus would like that story. Let's pray. For your returning, we watch and we pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. We love what you have done for us. You died for us. You rose again for us. You ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we assert gladly with the church down through the centuries that Christ will come again. May it be soon. But whether it's soon as we count soon or only soon as your Father counts soon, we want to be at our post when the inspection comes. So help us to resolve to be ready because we have heard your word today and it's in your own worthy name that we pray. Amen.